pray with me. Jesus, we thank you on this good Shepherd Sunday, Lord, that you are a faithful and good shepherd. We thank you that our souls are in good hands. And no matter what valley of the shadow of death that we are in, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Thank you, Lord, that when we go astray, you chase us down. Oh, Lord God, we bless you for your love for us. And we pray that you might speak good words to us today, that our souls might be nourished, that you might lead us to the waters of your word that we might drink and be satisfied. Help us, Lord Jesus, to hear from you today and no one else. This we pray in your name. Amen. Well, good morning again. As you are probably aware, although maybe you're not because, frankly, the days and the weeks are all blending together right now, but April 15th, it came and it went. And many of us, if you're like me, have still not done our taxes. And yet somehow we're not living in sin. How can that be? Well, as you know, the IRS extended that deadline to file our taxes, which means we get another three months to blissfully ignore all this, uh, this thing that we hate so dearly. And what is that sound you're hearing? It's the sound of hearts breaking within the accountants who are watching but while we can ignore and forget about this thing for a few more weeks, make no mistake, July 15th is coming, and that is Judgment Day. And we will all have to answer for income earned in the body in the last calendar year. Taxes is one of two favorite topics of Americans. You know the other, death. What a way to start a sermon. Well, as you know, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Philippians, Paul's letter, and today we're going to look at the last part of chapter 1, verses 19 to 30, although we'll spend most of our time on verses 19 to 26. I want to encourage you to turn there in your Bibles if you are able, and let's work through this passage together, and maybe let me tie in what this passage has to do with taxes and death. Well, Paul writes this letter to the believers in Philippi, which is the first church in the continent of Europe, which he himself planted 10 years earlier. And as you know, Paul dictates this letter while he is in prison. And he will eventually give this letter to a guy named Epaphroditus to deliver to the other Philippian believers. And specifically, as you'll remember, Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel, for going against the religious and the political and the cultural values of the day. And as a result of his doing so, he has been persecuted time and time again throughout his ministry, and this time he finds himself in prison, also with the threat of execution. His own death stares him in the face. It is unavoidable. Well, let's read our passage today, and let's see how Paul responds to this prospect. We'll begin with verse 19. Paul says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance. Well, in the very first part of chapter 1, Paul shared how thankful he was for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel, even despite the fact that he was in prison, which came with some considerable stigma. 
And then in our passage from last week, verses 12 to 18, Paul revealed how he understood his own imprisonment to be a blessing in disguise, given the way that God was using his imprisonment to spread the gospel. Well, here in verse 19, it becomes clear that Paul expects his prison term to come to an end eventually, maybe sometime soon. Now, remember, I just said that in this passage, Paul is talking about his own death staring him in the face. But here he's talking about deliverance. Well, which one is it? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Paul says in verse 19, he believes he will be delivered. And in our English translation, it appears that Paul feels this way for two reasons. First, their prayers for Paul to be delivered. They've been asking the Lord that he might be delivered. And second of all, the help of the Holy Spirit, who Paul says will deliver him. Actually, in the Greek, these two things are more like one complete thought. Paul actually links the prayer of the Philippians with the help of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he is saying that the help of the Holy Spirit is provided by God through the prayers of the believers. And that one thing is why Paul is confident about his deliverance. Now, this is really important for us to recognize because it means that the Philippians' prayers actually have an effect. Now, of course, we would never say out loud that prayer doesn't do anything. Sometimes we live that way, though, don't we? And yet Paul is saying that the believer's prayers are being used by God as the means through which to accomplish his purposes, specifically in this instance, of Paul's deliverance. And this, by far, is not the only place where Scripture suggests this. The Apostle James says in James chapter 5, the prayer of a righteous person has great power while it is working. Prayer has power. Prayer seems to move the hand of God. If we were to take a minute just to reflect on our lives, how much we participate in intercessory prayer stacked up against all the other things that we practice, where does it rank? Perhaps we might pray harder, longer, if we had faith that our prayers actually had an impact. I mean, I'll be the first to say that I do not pray as often or as long as I should, and yet what this passage seems to suggest is God wants to do something with our prayers. What might God be waiting to do until we simply ask him for it? Through the help of God's Holy Spirit, as an answer to the Philippians' prayers for Paul, Paul says he seems to know for certain that he'll be delivered. Now, that is not the same as saying that Paul knew he would be getting out of prison. Rather, it is to say that no matter what the outcome is, it would mean his deliverance. How so? Well, certainly if he was released from prison, that would be deliverance from confinement, right? But even if he wasn't released from prison, even if he was executed, that would still be deliverance for him. You see, the Greek word for deliverance here that Paul uses is the word soteria. It's the word that where we get soteriology, the theology of salvation. And so Paul is using this word to talk about physical deliverance or salvation in one sense, but also as spiritual salvation in another. No matter what happens, Paul knows, he expects God is going to save him. Now we'll see this play out 
in the next few verses. We'll look at verses 20 to 21 next. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Well, Paul says in verse 20, it is his eager desire not to be ashamed. It's kind of a strange, strange thing that he might include here. Well, what does he mean? Paul writes later on in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Is that what he means? Is, is it that he wants to make sure he isn't embarrassed by Jesus when the time comes? Or is he worried that he might act in such a way as to bring shame upon himself or to the Philippians who he represents? Well, I think the best way to understand what Paul is getting at is to consider what the psalmist writes in Psalm 25, verse 3. None who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. Paul's eager expectation is that he will be faithful to Christ. And in so doing, no matter what happens, God will not allow him to be put to shame before his enemies. Even if his enemies execute him, that God would vindicate him and put his enemies to shame instead, just as we saw on the cross. This becomes more apparent with what Paul says in the next phrase. He says, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Paul wants the courageous and the self-sacrificial use of his body to give glory to Jesus. If his physical body lives, then Paul wants it to glorify Jesus by Giving everything, else up, giving everything he has up for the sake of serving Jesus. And yet if his physical body dies, Paul wants it to glorify Jesus by showing the world that Christ is the only thing truly worth dying for. And thus we come to Paul's famous line, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. People do not usually talk this way. What is Paul saying? Why is he saying this? Is it because he's old and confined to a rocker? I mean, sometimes people want to die because they've lived a good long life and they simply want to go be with Jesus. Is that it? Or perhaps he's saying this because he's just off his rocker. Sometimes people want to die because they suffer from mental illness and they can't see any optimistic way forward for their life. Is that it? Neither are true in Paul's case. You see, Paul is in the prime of his ministry. And remember, this letter is overflowing with optimism, despite the grueling hardship he faces. In fact, this statement that Paul makes is 100% optimistic. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Living is a good thing because it's Christ. And dying is a good thing because it's a gain. Paul can't lose. Well, then what on earth does Paul mean by this? Well, thankfully, he explains himself in the next few verses, verses 22 to 23. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
What do you do when you have to choose between a good thing and another good thing? And you have to choose one, and you can't choose both. That's called a dilemma. I have always loved playing sports, and when I was in elementary school in Ohio, my two favorite sports were soccer and basketball. Soccer was played in the fall, basketball was played in the winter, but when my family uh, moved to, from Ohio to Florida right before my sixth grade year, I suddenly realized that in Florida, soccer and basketball are both played in the winter. And rather suddenly, I was faced with one of the most difficult and heart-wrenching dilemmas of my life. Do I play soccer or do I play basketball? Now, that may seem like a silly thing, but I agonized over that decision. But eventually, I did what 99% of the world's population would do, and that is I chose the beautiful game. And if you're not sure which one of those is the beautiful game, then I promise to pray for you this week. Well, Paul also has a dilemma. And it's not the New Hampshire dilemma, live free or die. No, the dilemma is simply live or die. Like Hamlet's, to be or not to be. Paul says life or death, which one shall I choose? Both are good how do you pick? Where Paul sees this dilemma, normal people see an obvious choice. Live or die. The answer is clear. Live. And yet the reason Paul sees the world in this way with a dilemma like this, a dilemma over living and dying, is because if you remember last week, Christ and the gospel are the greatest driving force in his life. To put it even more succinctly, Christ is Paul's life. Amen. Everything about Paul's very existence derives its meaning from Jesus, or at least that is his ambition. And so that means that no matter whether it's life or death, Paul is going to get Jesus, and Jesus is going to get glory. If he lives, Paul is going to give himself fully to Jesus through the message and the ministry of the gospel. And if he dies, Paul is going to attain the promise of the gospel which is eternal life with Christ. And that, Paul says, is far better. And yet, even though he says being with Christ is far better, Paul says in the next few verses that that's not what he will choose. This is what he says in verses 24 to 26. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So much as the choice is his, Paul will choose to live, not because it's what he really wants. He's not making the choice for him. He's making the choice for them. Remember, Paul is their spiritual father. He loves them deeply. He's given his life and limb for their growth in the faith so they might thrive, and he knows that they still have need of him. And any good father, when faced with the choice of whether or not to provide for his children, would choose to provide for them, no matter what it cost. And so because he knows it's better for them, if he lives, he's going to choose to live. He's living out what he will tell them in the next passage. Specifically, chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you not only look to his own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. Paul is putting himself last when most put themselves first. Paul is humbling himself when most exalt themselves. And I wonder where he got that idea. It's been so encouraging in the last six weeks to see stories of people sacrificing their own interests for the interests of others during this pandemic. Of course, there are the healthcare workers and first responders making big sacrifices every day. Chefs and restaurants are providing free food to the hungry. Ordinary people are providing a place to stay for those who need it. People are giving part or all of their stimulus checks to people with greater needs than theirs. Even those who simply choose to wear a mask for others' well-being, even though they're the, they themselves are not really at risk. And all of these things, when done in Christ's name, they are arrows that point to Jesus and his ultimate display of self-sacrifice on the cross. And so, in imitation of the Christ who is his life, Paul says, I'm going to remain and continue with you all. Not because I want to preserve my life, but because I want to preserve yours. My professor, Frank Thielman, who I quoted last week, writes this also. Death is the worst possible event for those who believe that they have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And our way of coping with it seems to be to deny its existence. So in a cultural milieu like we are living in, which ranks physical life as the highest good, it is not surprising that we have a hard time understanding how living can be the sacrifice and dying can be the gain. And yet our Western view of life and death is not always the biblical view. When we decide to follow Jesus Christ, Christ calls us to live for him each and every day. The gospel of easy believism, where all you need to do is give mental assent to what the Bible says and pray a prayer of salvation and then go on living your life however you see fit. It's not the gospel. The 20th century Christian theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Besides paraphrasing Jesus, Bonhoeffer's words are prophetic. He was martyred for his faith in Christ on April 9th, 1945 in a Nazi concentration camp for resisting that regime. His hanging was one of Hitler's final orders in April before Hitler himself committed suicide. Bonhoeffer understood that the grace of God in Christ is a costly thing. It cost Jesus everything to give it to us. So who are we to think that it will cost us nothing to receive? No, Christ calls us to live for him, to offer our own bodies as living sacrifices to him. How do we do that? How do we live for Christ each and every day no matter what we face, whether hardship or distraction. Well, there's a lot that goes into that, certainly more than this passage might give us, but I want to just talk about three things that I think this passage does give us. First of all, we need to evaluate what we're living for, if not for Christ. We need to evaluate what we're living for, if not for Christ. 
Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ. Well, if this were a fill in the blank, for me to live is blank, what answers might we hear people say? What answer would you say? Can we honestly say what Paul says? If we can't, then whatever we've filled in the blank with is the thing we've made into an idol. You see, there are those of us who like our earthly lives too much to actually live for Christ. We are too caught up and distracted in worldly pursuits. We are enamored by our culture and what it loves. And so we think about living for Jesus about two hours on a Sunday. The rest of the week, there's something else driving us. There is some other God we worship. And yet the answer isn't for us to just hate our lives. You see, because there are others who like our earthly lives too little to actually live for Christ. We're too busy complaining about our circumstances or regretting the things that we've done or filling our minds with darkness to consider the gift of life that we've been given and the opportunities that we have for making our lives count for the kingdom Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And what he meant was that a life without the pursuit of truth and wisdom is not enough. In a similar way, all of us must examine our lives to see, are we truly living for Jesus or something else? The second thing that I think we need to do in response to a passage like this is that we need to anticipate our deaths. We need to anticipate our deaths. At some point, all of us will cross, cross that threshold. We know this in our minds, but in the first world, it is much easier to ignore that fact. Whenever something happens to confront our mortality, whether it's the death of a loved one or an illness that we face or a natural disaster or a pandemic, we have an easier time seeing what is important and what isn't. I think the Bible would suggest that we can't really live a good and faithful life until we consider our own death. This is what Solomon means in Ecclesiastes 7.2 when he says, It is better to go to a funeral than to a wedding, for death is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Likewise, the psalmist says in Psalm 90 verse 12, Teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. The most recent edition of The Voice of the Martyrs magazine highlights how believers in Central Asia and in Sudan are suffering at the hands of Muslim fundamentalists. And how people in North Korea are being sent to concentration camps or just being executed simply for believing the gospel. Most of us are not facing this kind of persecution. Most of us do not have to make decisions about our daily spirituality, which include wondering whether or not we will be put in prison for it. Most of us do not wake up and wonder whether or not we will be murdered today. While I do not envy the kind of persecution that our brothers and sisters face in the world, I know that it would bring in sharp relief for me that I will die soon. And therefore, I could much easier recognize what is important in my life. 
I think we can see in this passage a call to pray for our brothers and sisters like this. Paul relied upon the prayers of the Philippians for the strength he needed from God in persecution. How much might persecuted believers around the world need our prayers? Prayers that they might stand firm and be strengthened in their faith. Prayers for their deliverance as their livelihoods and their lives are threatened on a daily basis. We, like they do, no doubt daily, must consider our deaths in order to live for Christ today. The final thing that I think this passage suggests we should do is that we need to trust that eternal life with Christ is better than life on earth. We need to trust that eternal life with Christ is better than life on earth. In middle school, I can remember being so deeply disturbed by the thought of Christ coming back. Like, Jesus, I, I want you to come. Don't get me wrong, just not yet. There's too much I want to do. I want to go to college. I want to get married. I want to have kids. It wasn't until high school and early college that I began to genuinely understand how much greater being with Jesus now would be. It wasn't until I got a truly biblical understanding of the new creation and what it would be like to be with Christ that I began to long for it. I think probably for most Christians, we tend to think if we live, that's a gain. But hey, if we die, well, at least we get Jesus. That is certainly not the view we get from Paul. Now, we aren't meant to kill ourselves and to seek out martyrdom so that we can be with Jesus. No, we're to live our lives with an eschatological, eternal perspective. We understand that eternity with God is better than anything this old creation can offer because we will be with Jesus face to face. We will be without sin and suffering and evil, and we won't have to number our days any longer. That is, unless you know how to count to forever. When we can live our earthly lives in light of eternity, it changes how we live now. A book that was extremely formative for me in those days in college that I just mentioned is a book called Don't Waste Your Life, written by pastor and theologian John Piper. Now, it's not a perfect book. I'll be the first to tell you that. But it's a very meaningful book. And I want you to listen to what he writes. Most people slip by in life without a passion for God, spending their lives on trivial diversions, living for comfort and pleasure, and perhaps trying to avoid sin. But God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display his supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. The wasted life is the life without this passion. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan and work, not to be made much of ourselves, but to make much of him in every part of our lives. So desire that your life count for something great. Long for your life to have eternal significance. Want this. Don't coast through life without a passion. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider the story from the February 1998 Reader's Digest 
A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. Whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find your way to say it and live it and die for it. And you will make a difference that lasts. You will not waste your life. I know these are not the topics that we most enjoy talking about. And yet, because we are an eschatologically oriented people, as Christians, we must. For Jesus, this earthly life is not the highest goal, nor is an earthly death the greatest evil. No, it is the eternal life with God which is the highest goal, and the eternal death of separation from God which is the greatest evil evil. Thus, in light of eternity, we can say with Paul that our earthly life is only worth living when lived for Christ, and our earthly death is always worth dying when dying for Christ. Lord, may you give us eyes to see and believe such as this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do not like to consider our deaths for obvious reasons. Help us, Lord Jesus, in ignoring our deaths not to waste our lives. Lord Jesus, as the psalmist says, teach us, in fact, to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom, that we may know how to spend our life, that you might get glory and that we might enjoy you forever. Give us these eyes and help us to believe things such as this. Amen.